Well, good, good evening, everybody. My name's Cole. Um, it's sweet to be with you all again. Um, my wife and I have been a part of Waipuna Chapel for about four years now, and uh, getting to preach a couple months ago was uh, just a really sweet blessing to me. And so getting to do it again and prepare again and um, just think about being here again has been uh, really great. Um, the last time I got to preach, uh, it was <laughs> about John 3.16. Uh, which is awesome, for God so loved the world. My text this time starts with you, woe to you hypocrites. Um, so it's a little different tone this evening, and obviously we're talking about doubting God. It's a little different series this time. Last time we were leading up to Easter and everything was about the gospel and the ministry of Jesus and all these amazing blessings, and this time it's, what are your doubts, what are your questions? Let's call each other hypocrites and, uh, and preach the word. So we're, we're going to, uh, we're gonna get through this together. Um, but uh, I, 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 I need to pray, <laughs> and uh, so I just want to pray for us this evening as we uh, dive into God's Word. But uh, Jesus, I thank you for your Word. I thank you, God, even for this uh, video that we just listened to, Lord, that you are right here with us, um, that you're right here in these questions with us, and I just pray, God, that uh, tonight as we approach this topic of hypocrisy and what to do when Christians let us down, people who bear your name let us down. And uh, I just pray, God, that this would be a, a time where we can draw closer to you in the midst of our questions. We can uh, pull closer to you in the midst of our doubts. Lord, you can pull us closer in the midst of our doubts. And I just pray, Father, that uh, we would see and experience uh, your love and your grace through your word this evening. So we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Um, Hypocrite is a common word to us, probably. Uh, it's the biggest complaint I've heard as a young person about Christianity is hypocrisy. Um, full of churches, just full of a bunch of narrow-minded, judgmental hypocrites, right? That's what church is. We doubt God. Uh, these people, they claim one thing, but they live another. It's confusing. Uh, there's plenty of examples. I remember in high school, I was one of the only Christians that a lot of my friends knew in high school. Um, and, you know, as a, that, that bears, there's some responsibility there. But, you know, some people at school would post Bible verses and they'd live a completely different way, right? Um, it's okay. We're working on it. Um, maybe you have a Christian boss that pushes their faith, maybe at the staff meeting or whatever, not Pastor Sean, obviously, um, but then treats workers disrespectfully or uh, rudely or doesn't respect their families or something like that, you know, or a dad shaming his daughter for dressing immodestly, but he's got a porn problem, right? Uh, you have a pastor that you look up to and admire, again, not Pastor Sean, but we can just, you just look at the news, there's pastors all over the place we look up to, we admire, we listen to their podcasts, and then we find out they're sleeping with somebody else's wife, Right? Um, or just your neighbor, Christians that just say Jesus is love, but then they treat the people around them with fear, suspicion, judgment. It's hypocrisy. It's all around us. Um, we still live in a time where it's at least sometimes fashionable to call yourself a Christian. There's a lot of people in America who call themselves Christians that probably are not, right? But this brings on all of these different labels. It brings on all these different things. And if we're going to be real followers of Jesus, we don't get to be hypocrites, um, and Jesus has got some, some words for us. So, but the reality is that tragically, when people think of the church, they think of scandals, think of abuse, they think of corruption, they think of judgment, hate, hypocrisy. That's what they think of. Um, I'm going to read you something from a guy named Brennan Manning. He says this, The single greatest cause of atheism in the world today is Christians. Ooh. <laughs> 
who acknowledge Jesus with their lips, then walk out the door, deny him by their lifestyle. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. Fair. This next one comes from a guy named Gandhi. <laughs> uh, maybe. Uh, I looked all over the internet to find out if Gandhi actually said this. People say it was Gandhi. So here we go. He says, oh, I don't reject Christ. I love Christ. It's just that so many of you Christians are so unlike Christ. All right. Next one from Pope Marcellinus. He was the Archbishop of Rome uh, many, many, many years ago. AD 360. No wild beasts are so deadly to humans as most Christians are to each other. It's tough. So this is clearly not just an issue in our generation. This is not just an, hypocrisy is not just an issue that our generation is dealing with. Jesus said this to the Pharisees before he ever went to the cross. This is our text for tonight. Matthew 23, verse 27. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. That's pretty tough. That's pretty tough. And this scripture comes right in the middle of Jesus pretty aggressively confronting the Pharisees for their religious hypocrisy, for their religious performance. Uh, my chapter heading in my Bible just says seven woes. This is one of those seven woes. Uh, these guys are the religious leaders of the people of Israel. And Jesus tells us that these guys actually sit on the seat of Moses in verse 2 of chapter 23. He says they are the teachers of the law. They are the leaders of the people. Jesus actually even tells you in the middle of pronouncing all these woes to them, he actually says, do what they tell you, which is also kind of tough. And another piece of this we might have to unpack. But he says this in verse 2, do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do, for they preach but do not practice. This is the, the origin of do as I say and not as I do, right? Which hopefully as parents we avoid. But Jesus' criticism of these guys is not actually their teaching, but their lives. It's their lives. Now, to be clear, we actually should give a little bit of a pass to the Pharisees compared to how we deal with ourselves. These guys are not Christians. They do not have the Holy Spirit living inside of them. They are not followers of Christ. They are not disciples of Christ. They are not apprentices of Christ. They don't have the Holy Spirit. We should actually probably be harder on ourselves than we are on the Pharisees, although we love to open the Bible and just say, those Pharisees. They were opponents of Jesus. We claim to be his friends, right? And this is going to be a theme for us going forward here. But these Pharisees were to be the spiritual leaders and guides of the people of Israel. Their job, their goal, was to guide and direct the people of Israel to the law, to the God of the law, they were to be shepherds, and Jesus calls them hypocrites. It's a very common word to us now. It's, it's normal in our vernacular. You may have been called it in the past. I was in high school. It's confession time. But to the ancient Jewish people, this, this actually had a very specific meaning, and it's kind of cool. I mean, not, it's not, but like the specific meaning is cool. Anyways, the word hypocrite to them meant an actor, okay? It literally translates to 
from Greek into English, an interpreter from underneath. An interpreter from underneath. This is what an actor was. Because Greek theater, everybody wore masks. Check these things out. Horrifying. Can't get this out of your head. But this is what they wore. So you see sad guy over here and happy guy over here. So you knew when that guy walked on stage, he was happy. Not because of his face, but because of his mask. Does that make sense? So in actually Greek theater, they would do this sort of like irony thing where they would have a very poor person play the part of a king or something like that. You'd have this dramatic irony. Or you would have someone who was in mourning wearing the happy mask or whatever. But the point of being a hypocrite was to be something but to wear a mask that was something else. That's pretty, a pretty simple and clear picture there. It was a cultural force from all the way from about 450 BC, the high peak of Athens, well through the time of Christ, and Greek actors wore masks. It's what they did. So to be an interpreter from underneath, or a hypocrite, was to be an actor under a mask. And believe it or not, Jesus was the first person in ancient literature to use this term about someone who's not in a play. So he, he's got a very specific deal that's, that he's got in his mind when he calls these guys hypocrites. And these guys have the very specific understanding that Jesus is wanting to get across them, which is they're living behind a mask. And what's going on behind the mask is not what's on the mask, right? There is a discontinuity between the presenting person and the person underneath. Jesus is saying that these teachers, these leaders of Israel were actually men behind masks. They were actors, hypocrites. These teachers were saying the right things and living contrary. And to this, Jesus says, woe to you for doing this. And Jesus actually deals with this very directly and with some specifics in another passage earlier in Matthew. And this is in Matthew chapter 6. He says, and when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do. So the, the, these guys, they have a way of giving to the poor that Jesus says, you are to give to the poor, but not like them. Next one, it says, and when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. And he goes on and says, because they, they pray, they think they're going to be heard because of their many words. And he says, you don't got to pray like that. Just pray our Father. The problem, obviously, is not giving to the poor or praying, right? That's not the issue. It was the fact that behind the mask, their heart was far from God. These guys were, as our passage today calls them, whitewashed tombs. And what happens after a while? They start to stink. <laughs> they start to stink. And what happens after being around them for a while? You start to realize, this is all a show. Those are dead bones in there. That's bodies. These guys are not actually about the poor, for example, from Matthew chapter 6. These guys are not actually about the prayers. These guys are not actually about, in our language, Jesus. Obviously, these guys really were not about Jesus. <laughs> but we call people hypocrites today. We're talking about they're not really about Jesus. They're about themselves. And, and what can start to happen as the people, let's just say us, who are being led by these sorts of people, men behind masks, when we're being led by these guys or impacted by these type of people, we can start to wonder if all of this is a big joke. Right, not just their faith, but like maybe actually Jesus actually is a big joke. That's what can start to happen, right? 
That's what can start to happen. Where we're being led by people who are men behind masks, when we're being guided by people who are men behind masks, we can kind of start to wonder, like, is this all a joke? Not just them, but like all of this thing, right? We start to ask and wonder if this Jesus is the thing, if this Jesus thing is really all that serious. If you can just sort of fake your way through it wearing a mask, how big of a deal can this really be? We can start to turn God into something that is tainted by the fake or damaging people who claim to represent him to us. And this is our question for today. What do we do? What do we do about Christians who let us down? And how do we go on as followers of Jesus? How do we continue pursuing a very real God when perhaps the people we're watching who claim to be relating to this very real God are not so real and they are in fact men behind masks? What do we do about Christians who tell us what to do, how to live, attempt to give us guidance and direction, claim to point us to God? How can this God be real when the people closest to him or who we perceive to be closest to him, and perhaps in their own mind, they are closest to him, they don't really represent him at all, but pretend to represent him well. And maybe they go even a step further and they tell us, no, really, God's okay with this. How do we deal with that? How do we deal with that? The Pharisees were convinced that God was on their side, <laughs> right? They, they didn't actually necessarily know that they were men behind masks. They thought God was on their side about all this stuff. So what do we do? How do we think? And how do we go on? Because we want to be followers of Jesus, right? How do we go on? Um, and so I want to say this, give an answer now, perhaps bluntly, okay? Uh, and then try to unpack it a little more gently, put it that way. But maybe if you've lost faith in Jesus because of people, maybe your faith is in people, when it should have been in Jesus. Let me say that one more time. If you have lost faith in Jesus because of people, maybe your faith was in people and not in Jesus. Now again, that's pretty blunt. And again, we're gonna talk a lot about the pain that people can cause to us and Jesus cares about those things. But I'm not preaching to those people hopefully tonight. I wanna preach to us, right? So what's, what's wrong? We're going to ask a couple of what's wrong questions, and we're going to answer a couple of what to do questions. So the first thing that's wrong, unfortunately, is us. <laughs> okay, bad news. This is a part of the problem. We actually love putting our faith in people. We really do. It's very comfortable. We want to trust people. We want to be able to put our faith in people. We want to have an authority in our lives. It gives us affirmation and comfort to know that people smarter than us more experienced than us, perhaps closer to God than us, it gives us comfort to know that they accept us, that they think like us, or that we can at least find comfort in how they think. We want to belong to something that seems important or bigger than ourselves. It feels good. It feels safe. Because it's scary to just have to figure stuff out on your own. And we saw this so clearly over the past few years. This is not just a problem for Democrats or for Republicans. We were all just kind of having to figure out which expert we were going to listen to, right? Everyone was calling the other side sheep or ignorant or stupid or whatever you wanted to call them, but everyone was just listening to their own expert and then judging the people who weren't listening to their expert because they were listening to a different expert and we were just judging each other. If you've driven down to Kihei, you've seen that 
concrete building across from the National Guard station. For a long time, the big, big word on the sign just said sheep. I don't know which team they were on, which team was getting called sheep in that moment. <laughs> uh, but somebody was getting called sheep. Uh, and it wasn't a friendly, like, oh, you're so cute. No, it's like, you're so stupid. That's what sheep means. And uh, that's, yeah, it just said, you are sheep. The assumption being that the person who put it up there was actually enlightened, right? They had figured it out. They're not the sheep because they got their expert telling them their thing, and they're good. We want to put our faith in people, and maybe not the people that those people want to put their faith in, but we want to put our faith in somebody, put our faith in somebody who knows something a little more than I do. It's a natural part of the human experience. It is. And listen, we live in a time where the world is so complicated that we actually do have to listen to experts almost all the time. I have no idea how my phone works, and I rely on it every single day. I have no idea how it works. It's magic. I don't know how my car works without a lot of YouTube, right? I can't afford a mechanic, but I can't afford YouTube. Uh, but if it wasn't for YouTube, I'd have to figure out how to afford a mechanic, right? But I just go on YouTube and some guy with a car is like, bro, if you just do this and this and then go here. And I'm like, okay, cool. Uh, we live in a specialized, complicated world. We are constantly having to put our trust in other people. We have to. We have to. Um, we rely on other people for their expertise. If the power went out in Maui, how many of y'all could just fix it? What would you do? Every day we rely on someone else's expertise, someone else keeping the world turning, at least their part, and then they deal with their part, and we deal. You just keep the world turning for us, right? It's a natural part of the human experience. And we've always done this, and this is like not just about phones and cars. We have always, for all of human history, done this in spiritual matters. Every culture for basically all of history has had some sort of class of semi-professional religious people that interpret spiritual things to normal people. That is like ubiquitous in the human experience. If anything is, that is. Every culture has had some sort of semi-professional religious group of people that translates the spiritual to them. Everybody has had someone help interpret the spiritual realm to them or interpret God, whatever that means in that culture, to them. And we trust those people or we go find other people that we trust to listen to because the first set of guys didn't make a ton of sense to us. We live in a consumer culture now where we have access to a plurality of gods, right? We can find a spiritual teacher on just about any street corner. When people claim to speak for God and we believe them, the things that they say carry a ton of weight. If they're really saying, hey, I have access to God, and you believe that person, you have put a lot of weight on that person, right? You're speaking for God, and I believe you? Yo, that's a heavy, heavy weight. And if people believe that you know the way to God, that is a tremendous responsibility, right? Listen, are you telling your neighbors the gospel? I hope so. That's a tremendous responsibility. You're telling your neighbor you know the way to God. That's wild. If you claim to be a leader of his followers or a follower of his, you better live like it if we're talking about Jesus. And when you don't, that has consequences for yourself and for anyone who's listening to you. 
just in the same way that the people you listen to, their words have consequences in your life. It's possible that your followers will lose faith that the people that are listening to you, not just in you, but also in the God that you preach. And we've seen this happen in reverse, right? You put your trust in somebody and they fail you and it causes you to doubt. It's, it's both a weight that we put on other people, but it's also a huge responsibility that we take on ourselves when we claim to know true things about God. We claim to be his followers. I remember this feeling hit me because I grew up in a, in, in a I, I grew up, most of my community was church. Everybody was just like, Jesus is great. This is awesome. I never felt the weight of it. I went to Nepal on my DTS outreach. That's the first school everybody does. My wife and I work with YWAM, by the way. Um, we live, well, we work over in Haiku. We live down Paia, and we, here we go, we disciple young people to follow Jesus. So that's going to come up later on. Uh, but I remember feeling the weight of this when I went to Nepal on my DTS outreach, because I was talking to people who had never even heard the name of Jesus, and I'm like, this is the way to God. And they're like, really? I'm like, yeah, really? They're like, what about all these gods? I'm like, they suck. Don't worry about them. Like, this is the way to God. And they're just like looking at me like I'm crazy. And I was like, it's not that crazy. This is Jesus. Like, this is the only thing I've ever known. But I didn't realize the weight of what I was asking them to do was change their entire life from generations of their family worshiping these Hindu gods, basing their entire life, their entire existence, their entire economy, their entire government around this one way of thinking. And I'm like, yo, just come with me. <laughs> what is that? That's crazy. It's also the truth. Uh, but it's crazy. Like, it's crazy to go to people and just say, I know the way to God. That's a huge, huge responsibility. But also, as we know as individuals, we've put that weight on other people. We, we put that weight right here in this book too, right? These pages are telling us the truth about God. And we put our, we, we, just, sang, we just sang it. I, I build my life on it. It's big. It's big. The stakes are high is what I'm trying to say. The stakes are high. Um, and, and, and unfortunately, here's the thing, guys. Like, we probably cannot stop putting our weight on people. Like my phone, my car, the power in Maui, my spiritual life. I need to be discipled. I need to be built up. I need Pastor Josh and Pastor Kaipo and Pastor Sean. I need these people. I do. I can't, I, I, got, I have three little kids now, and my wife and I, I need people. I need them bad. We cannot just say, well, people have failed me, and so now I, I don't do that trust thing anymore. We can try to live like that, but it's really hard. It's really hard to do this by yourself. And I'm going to argue in the long run, it's pretty much impossible. You can say that, you can feel that, but it's really hard to live that. We are, we are utterly dependent on other people. So that's... Part of what's wrong, it's us. And, and then the other half of what's wrong is them. Because uh, the problem with having to trust people is that they are broken. Living in a world where you need people, well, broken people. There's a man who comes and speaks on worldview in our schools with YWAM. His name's Rick Thompson. He lives over on uh, Big Island. And Rick talks a lot about a Christian view of what does it mean to be a human. And he summarizes it on the first day of lecture. He writes this up on the whiteboard. He writes up these two words, finite and fallen. 
That's a pretty bleak picture of what it means to be a person, don't you think? We are limited and we are broken. We are finite and we are fallen. After the first day, he erases it so that he can just keep using the whiteboard, right? But uh, every time a student asks a question about evil in the world, Rick will just point up to the corner of the whiteboard and say, what did it say? (laughs) Humans are finite and fallen. A student brings up the corruption in their home country's government or something like that. Points out to the board, finite and fallen. And this, while a very simple answer perhaps, uh, is the beginning of an answer to our problem. People are finite and fallen. People are limited and broken. The people that we put our trust in are limited and broken. You are limited and broken. We must put our trust in people. We naturally gravitate toward putting our trust in people, and people are finite and fallen. And this is the other thing. It's actually what God does in the Bible. God is constantly appointing leaders and representatives who are finite and fallen. (laughs) He calls people to leadership. He gifts people with gifts to lead. And he actually does call us sheep who need shepherds. But people are finite and fallen. And Jesus, in our passage, is talking to the leaders of the people of Israel who, back in the Old Testament, Ezekiel 34 especially, is going to call them shepherds, but bad ones. These people were finite and fallen. And Jesus calls these finite and fallen people whitewashed tombs. People who used their power for selfish gain People who use their leadership to manipulate and control. People do not practice what they preach. People do not represent God to his creation the way that they are supposed to. People live behind masks. They are hypocrites. We need people and people fail us. If you are turned off from church because of people, I get it. I do. Um, And so this is what is wrong. People are finite and fallen, and we need them. Or at least, we cannot avoid them for now. Important to note, for those of you who have been hurt really badly, (laughs) um, Jesus cares deeply about what has happened to you. Deeply. He weeps with you. It breaks his heart. And I'm not just saying that. I'm just going to throw out some scriptures here that I wish we could spend the next seven hours on, but Ezekiel 34, Micah 7, Amos 5, the Psalms, the entire book of Revelation, all of it is addressing directly these times where God's heart is broken and he is angry because the shepherds have abandoned the sheep and he's angry, angry. God cares deeply about our pain, about our wounds. He weeps with us. In fact, so much, we're going to see later on here, he's going to actually come to earth and be our shepherd. That's how much he cares. It's a huge deal to God, the pain of the innocent. Back from like the third page of the Bible when Cain kills Abel, right? And God says to Cain, where's your brother? And he's like, "Uh, what are you talking about? I'm not my brother's keeper. And God says, I can hear him, bro. I can hear his blood. It's crying out to me. The pain of the innocent has mattered to God since the beginning. He cares. But this, unfortunately, is also where I have to go back to our kind of blunt big idea. The church 
didn't let you down. The church didn't betray and hurt you. It, it wasn't the whole church. It was a few people. Just, just an example to try to soften this again. But if a restaurant, if you go to a specific restaurant and they feed you like the worst food you've ever had and the service is terrible, you don't go home and say, I'm never going to eat again. You might say, I'm never going to eat there again, right? But you don't go home and say, I'm never going to eat again. And this, unfortunately, this is a lot of times what happens. People get hurt by Christians, and then what they say is, I'm done with Jesus. It's like, yo, there's a lot of Christians out there, man. I, and, and again, we can come back to these passages, Ezekiel 34 and Amos 5 and the Psalms, and you come back and say, God is weeping with you. He is weeping with you, but like, don't sign off food because you had some bad pizza. Does that make sense? And at this point, it's, it's reasonable to ask, okay, that's fine. We, get, we see the problem. People suck, and this is hard. Now what? So what do we do? What to do? Well, what, what do we do about them? Let's ask that question first. That's good. What do we do about them? What do we do about Christians who let us down? We remember that they are finite and fallen. You were not made for people. You were made for God. You were made for God. You were not made to find rest in people. You were made to find rest in God. You were not made to find your identity in people. You were meant to find it in God. People are not the standard. God is the standard. People are not going to be able to fill up what you need. Augustine said this 1,600 years ago. He says this of God, you have made us and drawn us to yourself. Our heart is restless until it rests in you. We have been made for him, not for people. This miracle is that you are finite and fallen and yet made for an infinite God. Right? Jesus is going to look at the bad leaders, these hypocritical Pharisees. And in John chapter 10, he's going to say, I am the good shepherd. You're a shepherd. I'm the good one. <laughs> you were supposed to take care of my sheep and you failed. So I'm going to do this myself. You were not made for people. You were made for God. Yes, it is inevitable that you are going to have to rely on people. And yes, it is likely inevitable that they are at some stage going to fail you either in some small way or possibly in a huge way. And the first part of a solution to this problem is to remember that they are finite and fallen. Maybe in your head you can just see my friend Rick Thompson pointing up at the board. <laughs> finite and fallen. Finite and fallen. And I was not made for this. But the second part to the solution is unfortunately harder. What do we have to do about ourselves? What do I do about me? What do we do about Christians who let us down? We remember that we are finite and fallen. G.K. Chesterton was an author in the early 20th century. He was once asked by a newspaper editor to write a column on the prompt, what's wrong with the world today? That's a good prompt. What's wrong with the world today? And Chesterton responded simply, dear sir, I am yours, G.K. Chesterton. <laughs> it's the greatest newspaper article of all time. What's wrong with the world today? Dear sir, 
I am. I am. Earlier in the Gospel of Matthew, forget Chesterton, let's talk about Jesus. Earlier in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus invites us to do something famous, but also famously difficult. Before he gets after the Pharisees for their hypocrisy, he says to us in Matthew chapter 7, get the log out of your own eye before you try to get the speck out of your brother's eye. Jesus, knowing how easy it is to see what's wrong with someone else before dealing with your own stuff, puts the pressure back on us to deal with ourselves before dealing with other people. Jesus wants you to control what you can control first. Come to him with you first. Also, when Jesus teaches not just on judgment, but also on forgiveness, he is constantly putting the weight of the problem in the conflict on the one who has to do the forgiving, which is really frustrating. He's constantly, re- he's constantly shifting the weight back to, okay, how are you going to forgive? Constantly. This is not to say, again, I want to say this again because I do mean this. I don't just mean this as an aside. I mean this as a centerpiece. Jesus cares about your pain. He does. Deeply cares about your suffering. The pain you've experienced because of someone else's sin. He 100% cares. Big time. He's a God who brings justice. But when Jesus talks about conflict, he is always putting the weight of responsibility on the one who needs to forgive not on the one who needs to apologize. That's tough. In Matthew 18, he tells the parable of a servant. You guys remember this one. He tells the parable of a servant who is offered forgiveness for an unbelievable, totally unpayable debt. That's the, re- that's the purpose of the numbers in the parable. It's to make you think there's no shot this guy's ever going to pay it back. It, it, he would have had to pay back two to three of Solomon's temples worth of gold to get out of this debt that he owed to this king. So he's not happening, right? And the king looks at him and just forgives him. He forgives him. Then the servant who receives the pardon of his debt goes straight to another one of the servants, a servant who owes him a comparably quite small debt, grabs the servant by the neck, chokes him, and demands that he immediately pay him back. And when the servant says, I can't, just let me, let me go. I'll, I'll get you quick. Like, let me go. He throws him in jail. He won't let him have it throws him in jail. Jesus says that to respond to someone who owes you, and this is the point of the parable, after acknowledging what God has done to forgive you, to respond in judgment and anger towards someone who you need to forgive, Jesus says if you respond this way, it's wicked. It's evil. We all owe God an unbelievable, totally, utterly unpayable debt. The debts owed to us by others are real, and they matter to God. But to respond with self-righteousness, unforgiveness, or arrogant moral superiority is foolish, and Jesus calls it wicked. It's wicked. And we can all put ourselves to the hypocrite test here real quick. We all fall short of God's standards, but here's the reality. We probably all fall short of our own standards. Okay, so I'll give credit to to Tim Keller here for this. I heard this in a sermon one time and it completely changed my life. He said this. He said, just imagine if when you go to stand before the judgment seat of God, instead of him reading a list of his laws, 
or the righteousness of Jesus Christ? What if he just read back to you all the times that you said, oh, they should do it this way? What if instead of him unrolling the law of God, he just unrolled the law of coal? It was like, here's all the times, bud. Here's the times when you said that guy should do it this way. Here's all the times that you looked at somebody else who was trying to parent their kids before you had any, and you said they should do it this way. How, how did you talk about parents before you had kids? How did you talk about your friend who was struggling financially before you lost your job? How did you talk about a person who was struggling with addiction issues before you suffered the loss of a family member? Like, if God unrolls the scroll and it's the law of God, we all know we're failing. But ask yourself seriously, if God unrolls the scroll of coal and says, here's the law you made, am I passing that one? Yo, I'm a hypocrite all of a sudden. You see what I'm getting at? And, and this, is, this is the deal for me, guys, because the scroll of coal is long now. I'll just tell you guys where I'm at. I'm... At this point in my life, I've been a professional religious person since I was 21 years old. All right? That's, that's horrifying, first of all. I got paychecks from a church when I was 21 years old. I'm a missionary now. I went to five years of Bible college. I was raised by a Christian mom around a bunch of Christian friends. I was blessed with a church who taught me the Bible. I've been inundated with the scriptures since I was a child. My life has always had God in it. It has always had the blessing of God in it. My family bore some tragedy when I was little, but it has always had the blessing of God in it. And now I'm a husband, I'm a parent, I'm preaching. Right now, my role with YWAM, I lead a school of worship. I train people to be worship leaders. I'm asking a bunch of young people to offer up their entire lives to God as a living sacrifice. That's what I'm doing every day. <laughs> and I'm a hypocrite, man. I'm not the husband I'm supposed to be. I'm not the parent I'm supposed to be. I'm not the school leader I'm supposed to be. I'm not the friend I'm supposed to be. It's me, man. And I, this, I get, I'm right here. It's me. Yeah, they got some problems too, but it's me, man. And the scroll of coal is getting long. I'll tell you guys what I did this week. I taught lecture this week. So I talked before this sermon. I talked for about 15 hours this week. Three hours every single morning this week. I was t telling people about worship. <laughs> I was telling them about ancient pagan worship. I was telling them about Israelite worship. I was talking about Jesus and how he's our sacrifice and our temple and our priest and how he turns us into priests and temples and sacrifices. It was awesome. <laughs> what's the scroll of coal looking like though how many times did I tell somebody what they should do this week it was a lot <laughs> I'm telling y'all what you should do right now it's a heavy calling to bear the name of Jesus Christ and odds are we're going to be hypocrites sooner or later But here's the thing, guys. It's great news. Jesus did not just come into the world to save sinners. You know those nasty people that we're thinking about? 
He came to save me too. He came to save hypocrites. He came to save hypocrites. And when I see that, when I see redemption in my life, I can actually start to forgive, right? When I see my debt getting forgiven, it makes me merciful. The hypocrites who've let me down, the failures, the people who should have known better before they did it, people who manipulated me or used their power to hurt me instead of serve, those whitewashed tombs full of bones, Jesus came for them. And if he didn't, I'm in trouble. Because that's me. (laughs) That's me. So what do we do? We remember that people are finite and fallen. Remember that I am finite and fallen. But most of all, what do we do? We got to look to Jesus. (laughs) What do we do? We embrace his forgiveness for us. And we extend his forgiveness to others. And we fix our eyes on Jesus. No matter if they're sorry or not. The big picture of the Bible is that people are finite and fallen and in need of a savior. That's the deal. (laughs) That's what the Bible's all about. Jesus is necessary because you are finite and fallen. Not just them, but us. We are finite and fallen. This is not a left or a right issue. That is, this is not a them and an us issue. This is me. Paul says this, Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the uttermost. This, he says, is a saying worthy of full acceptance. <laughs> we embrace Jesus because without him we are hopelessly lost and bent on our own destruction. We are broken, incomplete, unjust, self-obsessed hypocrites, men behind masks. But with Jesus, with him, we are as we are by the grace of God. What you accomplish, what you put together for good, what you do on behalf of other people, we give all glory to the powerful grace of Jesus, not to ourselves. We fix our eyes on Jesus because he will not let us down. We fix our eyes on Jesus because he is the author and the perfecter of our faith. Our faith is not authored or perfected by the Pharisees, by our pastors, or by ourselves. It's perfected by Jesus Christ. We are a product of the grace of God. Jesus is our hope. Jesus is our author. Jesus is our completing power. And he will never let you down. And he is just. He's just. He does care about the harms that have been done to you. He cares deeply about it. He cares deeply about the things that happened to you, and he will repay the unjust for what they have done. We have a king, and he's serious. He says that he's a jealous God who will not take it lightly when people take his name in vain. He's serious. So we trust the one who judges justly. You trust the one who can make a perfect assessment of every heart. And you forgive. And we must forgive. So let's, uh, let's talk about Joseph real quick. We'll end here talking about Joseph. Um, 
So the story of Joseph is the last long bit of Genesis. But in the story of Joseph, we, we hear about this kid who's one of the youngest sons of a man with many sons. And uh, Joseph receives promises from God through dreams that his family is going to bow down to him. And wisely or unwisely, however you want to interpret it, he tells his brothers about it. And they don't like it. And on top of that, he receives a privileged position with his dad. So he's special boy, apparently in God's eyes. He's special boy in his father's eyes, and his brothers hate him for it. Right? His brothers hate him for it. And his brothers, they want to kill him. His brothers decide instead what they think would be best in this situation is to make a little money off the guy. So they throw him in a well, and they wait. Some slave traders come by, and they say, now's our chance. Let's make some money. So they pull this kid, who has not, in the story, done anything wrong except tell his brothers some cool dreams that he had, which, again, you might be like, he was asking for it. <laughs> if you come from big family, maybe that's how you feel. His brothers want to kill him, and instead they sell him as a slave. He's sold in slavery to a man named Potiphar. All right? Potiphar. He honors his master. He honors all of his responsibilities, and he is put into a position of authority in Potiphar's house. He represents well. He's a slave on accident, essentially, and he chooses, I'm going to honor my task, which is just amazing. But Potiphar's wife comes on to Joseph repeatedly and tries to get him to sleep with her. Joseph pushes her away constantly. Finally, she's had enough, and uh, she screams, and she runs. Joseph runs out of the house while she's screaming, and his coat falls, and she's like, ha-ha, he tried to rape me is what he says, what she says to Potiphar. He says, he tried to come on to me. And Potiphar is angry, rightfully so. His slave tried to sexually assault his wife. He's angry. So what does he do with Joseph? Throws him in jail. Well, Joseph's in jail now after getting blamed for something that he did not do. Joseph once again honors the authority in his life. And he rises to prominence in jail, which is not a position that I would want to be in. I would want to be like the most middle prisoner, whatever that is, right? But Joseph's like, I'm the best of all the prisoners. Um, anyways, but two prisoners have dreams, uh, one of life and one of death. And Joseph is able to interpret both of these dreams back to these guys. Um, and the one prisoner is killed, just as Joseph saw in this uh, vision, and the other one is restored to his position, and Joseph's last words to him are, hey, when you are restored to Pharaoh's right hand, like, don't forget about me. Well, he forgets about him. And the book of Genesis tells us that it's a, a, a while, like a couple years that Joseph is left in jail, having been forgotten by this guy that he foresaw his deliverance. But now Pharaoh's going to have a dream, right? Pharaoh has the dream about the weird skinny cows, and, 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 but he has a he's dream about the fat cows, and they're all fat, and everything's happy. But then the skinny cows come and eat the fat cows, and the skinny cows stay skinny, and Pharaoh is horrified, as we probably all would be if we had this dream. And so he's asking everybody, somebody tell me what this means. And his cupbearer is like, you know what? I know a guy. I remember. I'm the worst. I forgot about my friend Joseph. And so he says, Pharaoh, go call this guy Joseph out of jail. He'll tell you what the dream means. And sure enough, he is. Joseph comes up, tells Pharaoh the dream. Pharaoh finds out this guy's really wise. He's got lots to give. God seems to be on his side. So I'm going to put Joseph in charge of Egypt. So he went from kid who just had some dreams to being a slave, to being the chief slave, to being a prisoner, to being the chief prisoner, to being forgotten in jail for a long time for crimes he did not commit, to being 
the second in command in Egypt, which is a pretty wild little story for our guy. But he is given authority basically to protect Egypt from a famine. And uh, he does. And turn of events, the famine reaches all over the ancient Near East. And Joseph's brothers find out that Egypt has got some food. So they head down to go get some food from Joseph in Egypt. Pretty fun time. And he plays some tricks on them because he recognizes them, but they don't recognize him. And all of that is not really relevant to what we're about to get to. Um, But he essentially plays tricks on them for a couple trips to Egypt and then reveals himself to his brothers. And his brothers are horrified. Why might that be? Well, because they sold him into slavery, right? And now he's the most powerful man in the world. So you just imagine that this person that you wronged horribly wronged, is now the most powerful guy in the world and has your life in his hands, right? And they're terrified. What's what's he going to do to us? What's he going to do to us? And after Jacob, their father, dies, Joseph says to them, come, like, live with me. Like, you could just live here forever. I will provide for you. And they're like, what are you talking about? So then Jacob dies, and they're like, he's going to kill us now that dad is gone. He's totally going to kill us. So they go and lie to Joseph, and they tell him, your dad told you to be nice to us. That was his dying wish. It's not true. They made that up because they wanted to save their own skin. They were afraid of Joseph even still after he'd been providing for them. But Joseph cuts through their nonsense and offers unbelievable forgiveness. And here's what he says to them. Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. That's unbelievable forgiveness. Like that's extravagant forgiveness. And not all of us are in charge of Egypt, right? Like we can't offer the sort of things that he's offering to them, obviously. But through this, we see something here. We see the heart of forgiveness, the perspective of forgiveness, and the restoration that comes through forgiveness, right? The heart of forgiveness starts with, I, I'm, I'm not in the place of God. Like, I, I am entrusting myself to God. That's where forgiveness has to come from, is a place where you trust God. You trust God to restore, and you don't have to do it yourself. But the perspective of forgiveness, he says, yeah, you did mean evil against me. You meant evil against me. You tried to hurt me. You tried to kill me. You meant evil against me. But the perspective of forgiveness says, but God meant it for good. That God undid the death you brought into my life and now the restoration of forgiveness I'm going to bring life back into your life it's not unbelievable this full this guy ate every ill will of every person he ran into for years because of the sin of his brothers and what he gives back to them is unbelievable forgiveness this guy ate the pain and the suffering that came from his brothers hating him mistreating him doing the wrong thing over and over and over again while he was doing the right thing over and over and over again. And at the end of it, he says, don't be afraid. I'm not in the place of God. I'm trusting God. Through Joseph, we see what to do when people fail us. We remember that we are not God. We trust the just judge. We forgive and we press on to do our best to fix our eyes on Jesus and not be those hurt people who hurt people, (laughs) right? We make sure that we don't become the people behind the mask. 
Those people behind the mask who hurt us, we do our best as we forgive and we get God's perspective, then we don't become those people behind the mask. Those whitewashed tombs full of bones. And here's the thing, guys. More importantly, through Joseph, we see how Jesus handles our failures. We are the sinful, broken brothers whose sin leads to the suffering of the perfect one. It's our sin that puts Jesus on the cross. Yet it's his response to our sin that is just like Joseph's. He trusts his father's plan. He suffers in our place. And then he provides for all of our needs through the abundance of his loving sacrifice. Like, he eats our sin and then provides for us out of his abundance. Just like Joseph did for his brothers. Long before we are dealing with hypocrites, Jesus is dealing with us. Long before we have to forgive someone for what they do to us, Jesus is extending unconditional, everlasting love and forgiveness to us in the place of our sin. Long before we love and follow Jesus, he is loving and forgiving us, looking past our failures and our hypocrisy to restore us. Jesus has no tolerance for hypocrisy, but he has unlimited grace and forgiveness for hypocrites who realize that they need a savior. He has no tolerance for hypocrisy, but he has unconditional, everlasting grace and forgiveness to extend to us who decide, you know what? Let's take off this mask. Let's meet Jesus. He wants to meet us where we are. Let me pray. Jesus, I thank you so much for tonight. God, I thank you uh, that you did not just come into the world to save <laughs> sinners. <laughs> you came into the world to save hypocrites. You came into the world to save me. And I just, I thank you, God, and I praise you for your unconditional grace that while we were still sinners, you died for us. Lord, long before we had to deal with somebody else's sin, you dealt with ours. And I just thank you, Jesus. I thank you so much that you take us, us whitewashed tombs full of bones, and you make us pure again. You make us clean again. And so I just pray, God, that we would find the blood of Jesus and the body of Jesus to be sufficient for us. I thank you, God, that they are. I thank you, God, that what you've offered us in your forgiveness is enough to cover all of our sin, even all of our shame, even all of our hiding, even all of our doubt and regret. You are enough to cover all of it. And so we love you, Jesus, and give ourselves to you. Help us, God, to take off these masks. In Jesus' name, amen.